Good afternoon, everybody, and a very warm welcome to St. Paul's. We're delighted that you're here for the next of our uh, forum discussions uh, over a book that's been published recently. Uh, and we're going to be talking today about Advent, which, of course, is very appropriate to do on this first Sunday of Advent. And we're all conscious, I think, that um, Advent is meant to be uh, quiet and contemplative time of the year where we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ both at Christmas and at the end of the world, at the second coming as we describe it theologically. But I know that all of us feel nevertheless that Advent is swamped very much by Christmas, which seems to get earlier and earlier each year, and uh, we're just as much to blame with all of our Christmas decorations, which have been in our shop um, for commercial reasons uh, for some weeks already, and it's, it's a, one does that with a great sense of regret, that uh, mixing up of two very different, very separate feasts, although obviously connected. So we're thrilled that Jane Maycock is with us this morning to talk about her book, Windows on a Hidden World, which is exploring the Advent landscape. Um, and Jane knows uh, a lot about busyness uh, when perhaps we'd rather be contemplative. Um, Jane's married, is a priest herself, of course, and is married to a vicar and has four school-aged children. So getting ready for Christmas is something which features uh, in Jane's book in that sense of, of the family uh, getting ready for Christmas. She's written a beautiful book, uh, which she's going to talk about, um, reflecting uh, writers from the Bible, uh, poets, and of course hymn writers. Some of our greatest hymns are the Advent hymns, uh, and Jane has put those together in this book, but very much with reflection on why these texts might be helpful to us in Advent. And Jane was ordained here as a priest uh, in 1994. It was the first year, of course, that uh, women were priested uh, in the Church of England. Um, and it was also the last time that Jane was here at St. Paul's. So we're very glad to be able to welcome her back 18 years later, apparently uh, 18 years ago on that very special day, uh, an occasion that was enhanced by objections from the floor. Uh, we're hoping today that uh, contributions from the floor will be greatly welcome, but not objections. Uh, so let's, uh, let's welcome Jane in the usual way, please. Thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, for that welcome. It's very good to be here. Um, and I just do want to make it clear that there is nowhere else that I would rather be here and now. Uh, and I have been looking forward to coming for, um, well, quite a few months ever since uh, Elizabeth invited me. It was great to be asked. However, um, I would just point out that there are one or two other things that I could have done this weekend if I had been staying in Cumbria. Um, I could have visited Santa at the White Platts Hotel in Ambleside, or had Christmas fun at Grisdale, taken a fresh look at Christmas at a furniture store in Barrow, <laughs> Visited Elephant Yard in Kendal, where apparently the elves of Kendal have been working overtime this year, building a grotto fit for Santa. <laughs> or I could have visited Santa in his grotto at Hayes Garden World in Ambleside, attended a Christmas craft fair in Kendal, or a Christmas cookery class in Ravenstonedale. I could have enjoyed a magical journey on board the Santa Express at the Ravenglass and Eskdale Railway, where apparently Santa also has a grotto. And I'm also informed that the Santa Express is on its way to the Lakeside and Haverthwaite Railway, 
and I could have taken up an early bird special offer this weekend for only £10 per person. However, I'm here, but I could be planning ahead for next weekend when I can apparently enjoy a magical Christmas with Beetham Nurseries or go on a Victorian Christmas tour at Muncaster or enter the spirit of Christmas at Dalamain. And given that I haven't been able to do it this weekend, I could enjoy sleigh bells and cocktails at any one of six in the Lake District Hotels group. I'd just like to emphasise I'm very glad I'm here. <laughs> not, not that I'm ever a grumpy old woman. And that's only from reading the, uh, the Westmoreland Gazette's Good Guide to Christmas, I think it was. But we're here, and we've chosen to be here, and here is where we can anchor ourselves. We're going to think a little bit about some of the big themes of Advent in a minute, but I'd just like you to bear with me for a moment um, uh, whilst I just say a little bit about the domestic situation of the last week. Um, as I say, I've been really looking forward to coming. So on Tuesday morning, my husband fractured his femur um, and is in hospital. Um, so that meant a little bit more organisation was necessary. Um, three of the children have had quite bad colds, so I wasn't sure if they were going to be ill over this weekend. The little one wanted daddy um, a lot. Um, we discovered that a violin exam was two days earlier than expected next week. An arrangement for help with a lift to ballet class failed, and I had to go out anyway. Um, I had fretful texts at one point about a slipping peg on the violin. Um, generally speaking, there's been less sleep, um, which equals more tiredness, more headaches, and less effective working. And then finally, um, there was the unaccountable loss of a notebook on Friday, which had notes for this talk in it. Now, I'm not saying any of that because I'm self-pitying at all, nor am I saying it because I think really my domestic situation is remotely interesting. And I wasn't going to mention it at all. But I'm saying it because it seems to me um, to il be illustrative of something that's actually quite important and comes to the fore in Advent. And that's the question, what do we do when these things accumulate? What do we draw on when bad things happen? Now, none of these things are terribly major things, but when they begin to build up, you begin to think after a while, you know, what is going on here? I was looking forward to being able to walk away leaving James in charge and instead there's been lots of extra organising to do um, and I found myself thinking about Job inevitably perhaps. Now I don't know if you remember the, uh, the picture of Job that comes um, at the beginning of the book of Job and particularly of, of the relationship that's portrayed between God and Satan. Um, we're told what an upright and upstanding character Job is. Um, and then there's this comment that, you know, one day in the heavenly council, Satan walks in and, and God says to him, uh, you know, where have you come from? What have you been doing? And Satan says, oh, you know, just going to and fro over the earth. Um, it might seem a bit irreverent, but when I was reading this recently, I thought it's a bit like conversation in a pub, really, you know. Somebody walks in and, uh, and uh, God says to Satan, you know, what have you been doing then? Oh, going to and fro. And there's something very deliberately provocative, I think, about God's response I, I, sorry about this, but I could envisage him staring into his beer glass, not looking at Satan straight in the face and saying, oh, have you seen my servant Job? You know, it's just sort of teasing a bit. Um, and, uh, of course, he makes Satan recognise that, that Job is such a good character. And Satan says to him, yes, but if you begin to make bad things happen to him, he's going to, uh, to turn against you. So God says, well, OK, you give it a go. And, uh, and we'll see what's hap what happens. Now, 
there's something of a bit of a luxury, I think, um, of standing outside that picture and looking in on it. And I enjoy it. And I know that I'm, I'm there thinking, you know, I'm being the biblical scholar, if you like, saying, well, isn't this interesting? And I know that the name Satan means accuser. And I think that's a very interesting dynamic as well. Um, and, and there's a bit of a luxury, as I say, of standing outside and analysing that and looking at it. But when I do that, I'm also very aware that actually I don't want to put myself into that picture and I don't want to be in the position of Job. Fancy having all that happen to you. He has a terrible time, that, that's putting it mildly. How on earth would I cope? Would we not be more inclined to do what Job's wife eventually uh, urges him to do, which is curse God and die? And I'm just reflecting on the fact that when things get a little bit dark, we have to prioritise what we know over what we feel. And I think that's what Job exemplifies in, in, in the book. We heard this morning uh, in, in the service the Advent Collect, which we hear every, every Sunday um, throughout the period of Advent. And those lovely words give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. And that's a very dynamic image, contrasting darkness and light, and reminding us of the theme of conflict and of how central that is to Christian life. Because as Christians, obviously, we're not immune from any of the things of this world. Just because we believe in God, it doesn't make us immune from negative things happening to us. We're subject to the same joys and sorrows as anyone else. But our belief, of course, colours the way we respond. And we often find that we're drawing on things which are not visible. And as I illustrated to start with, we can be rather overwhelmed with all the happenings of an idea of Christmas that has no place for God. All that really is by way of a rather long introduction. The things we focus on in Advent are often rather hidden, and they're pushed back, perhaps, from our daily lives. And we're going to just think a little bit about those things now. I wonder whether you have ever had the experience of looking out of a window in a new place um, just to see what it's like. Um, perhaps you arrived somewhere in the dark uh, and you get up the next morning and it's your first chance to actually look out and see what kind of a place you're in. And so there's a new landscape there to be explored. Or perhaps a slightly different image, I wonder whether you've ever had the experience of looking in a mirror and seeing what's familiar and yet it's also strange because it's reversed. And, and this is just my curiosity. I'm always intrigued by the fact that how you can somehow see more in a mirror than you can in reality. That actually, if you get close to the mirror, you, it seems that it can reflect what's around the corners. And I, I'm not a scientist. I don't know how it does that, but it fascinates me. And I can't help thinking about uh, Alice through the looking glass, obviously, when she enters that different world. But I want us to think for a minute about um, windows on advent calendars. Imagine, perhaps, that you've got an advent calendar and that when you open that little window, there's no nice little picture there waiting for you. No chocolate either, I have to say. Um, I could do a little bit of a rant about that. I mean, what's that about if not uh, instant gratification and advent's a time of waiting? But there we go. I shall leave that one for now. Imagine there's no chocolate, there's no picture. But instead, we look out onto a rather misty, perhaps, or, or grey landscape where the features are rather hidden, initially rather indistinct, perhaps. This Advent landscape may not seem particularly inviting. Yet after staring from your window for a bit, perhaps you can make out some signposts pointing you in various directions. 
perhaps after a little bit longer, you might see labels on them. They might be labeled heaven, hell, death, judgment. And there's another one somewhere that says second coming. And you think to yourself, my goodness, this is heavy stuff. Who'd want to go there? However, this is how Advent can look from the outside, looking in. These things are traditionally themes that we think about or encouraged to think about in Advent. It may not seem very appealing, and I think in some ways that's one of the reasons why I ended up writing the book. But what if we climb through the window and begin to inhabit the landscape? If we do, then I think we're able to understand something of what the poets I refer to in the book, um, and indeed many others as well, are expressing when they're writing. We find they're expressing things like joy and creativity and resurrection and love. And it's in the light of these things that we experience the challenges of the big ideas and traditional themes of Advent. You may be intrigued to know how, how the book came about and why I chose these particular poets, because it's a rather odd choice in some ways. Um, a, a couple of years ago, I was uh, trying to be very sensible. I'd got rather a lot of things on, and I, I said, right, I've got to clear some of these things off. And I said no to a few things and was beginning to feel quite pleased with myself for making a bit more space. And then I had a phone call from someone um, in Solway Deanery uh, asking if I'd like to lead a quiet day for Advent um, about six months later. And I thought, oh, no, I'm just trying to give things up, you know. I, it's much easier to say yes sometimes than it is to say no. So I was in a bit of a dilemma then. Um, and, and he said, well, you know, you don't have to do anything special. You know, if there's something that you've done before or you lo enjoy looking at, then you can just do that. So I thought, right, that makes it quite easy, really. Um, because I always start December full of good intentions about trying to observe Advent uh, and not be overwhelmed with Christmas. And I sometimes survive for about a week doing that, and then it just becomes a bit overwhelming because there are so many Christmassy things going on. Um, and if you've got uh, school-aged children or have had school-aged children, you'll know that you know, they start having nativity plays, you know, it could be two weeks before Christmas because of when terms end, ends and all that sort of thing. Um, so I always fail miserably, really. Um, but I then end up, for my own um, personal sanity, really, retreating into the works of some of these poets, people like Robert Southwell um, and Richard Crayshaw, um, T.S. Eliot's another one, he doesn't feature in, in the book, and R.S. Thomas, in an attempt not to be overwhelmed by, by Christmas um, when it's still only Advent, um, and to try and focus on what it's about um, I, I was very amused. Uh, last year, I think it was, one of my brothers-in-law said to me that his little girl had come home from school one day, probably in, sort of towards the end of November or, or middle of November, and she'd said, Daddy, we've been told at school that we mustn't say the C word. And he was wondering what on earth <laughs> it was that they had been told not to say. And she, and she said very seriously, we're not allowed to mention Christmas, which I think was a great relief to him. <laughs> but also a good notion. So the notion of hiddenness, this is something which has, has come up uh, again and again, really, as I've been thinking about Advent. And, and it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think if, if actually my faith is based on something which is, which is all hidden, uh, not really visible, um, it can all begin to seem a little bit negative. What is there to rely on? There is, as you may well be aware, a, a quite a strong tradition in um, Christian spirituality which is known as the apophatic tradition. Um, and it's about um, having that very powerful sense 
of the presence of God in absence almost. It does sound a bit paradoxical, but if you read the works of people like John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila um, or Meister Eckhart, they all, all talk about the fact that actually you can't really say anything about God. And John of the Cross's own experience, um, imprisoned and, um, and experiences of illness, helped him to see just how God is present in, in the depths, even if one doesn't always have tangible things to, to hold on to. So there is that strand um, which is about hiddenness. Um, and sometimes it can seem a bit negative, as I say, but it's not always like that. If we think about secrets, it makes it perhaps seem a little bit different. Um, one of the um, poems or hymns that I refer to in the book is by Timothy Dudley Smith, Child of the Stable's Secret Birth, uh, and it's uh, wonderful words. Um, and he has this idea of, of the secret. What is this, this, the, the birth in the stable holds so much more than appears um, at first sight. And I think one of the things to remember in Advent is this sense that God has chosen hiddenness as his way of being amongst us. What kind of expectations would anyone possibly have had of a baby in a manger? And it's one of the things that Robert Southwell is very strong on as he invites us to think again about the nativity in poems like New Prince, New Pomp, and New Heaven, New War, and in fact The Burning Babe, which those are three of his poems that I, I've selected for the book. Um, as you may know, he was born in um, Elizabethan England. Uh, he was a Jesuit. It's a very difficult time to be um, a, a Jesuit, to be a Roman Catholic. Um, and he was martyred at the age of 34, but he's left us with some, some marvellous writings. So there's the idea of hiddenness and secrecy. And then there's the idea of the second coming. Now, I do say in the book that I've struggled a little bit with this. Um, it's, it's a huge idea, isn't it? And um, in everyday life, the idea of, of the second coming, that God will come again, um, isn't this a bit of an unreality? Um, when Jesus was taken up into heaven, if you look at the beginning of Acts, he's taken from, from sight, and then um, there are two men who appear to the disciples and say, this Jesus whom you've seen taken from you will return in the, in the same way. And there was obviously a very strong belief in the early years of the church that um, Jesus would return, and that would be quite, quite imminent. Um, and that develops over time, because obviously he didn't. Um, and actually, we can't live in a state of anticipation all the time, surely. We just need to get on with everyday life. But we do need to understand for ourselves something about living in a culture of waiting. Because the promise of the second coming is essential to Christianity, and it's also a promise of an almost unimaginable change. And it can feel a bit like a kind of pie-in-the-sky promise, can't it? So we need to think about how we live with this dimension of reality. And in thinking about that, um, I, I don't know whether these are things that you, you'll be familiar with or not, but I'd like to say that this, this living with a different dimension of reality is more Harry Potter than Northern Lights. Um, if you've read Philip Pullman's Northern Lights trilogy, um, you'll be aware that, that he puts across the idea um, that there are very many different worlds existing at the same time, all alongside each other, but almost totally separate from each other. Um, and, and with only very um, rare exceptions, does anybody get from one world into another world? Uh, and in fact, it becomes very clear that you can't live in, um, 
in the world that's not your own. By contrast, the world of Harry Potter is rather different. The wizarding world inhabits the same space and the same environment, and the wizarding community do many of the same things that ordinary human beings do, but with a dimension that's not always, and in fact mostly never, visible to people around. But there are events that happen in this wizarding world which have an impact on the the world of the muggles, as as they're called. Um, And so they're very intimately linked, although for the most part, a lot of it is not visible. So I think the season of Advent focuses on our minds, on the fact that we live embedded in a world which may not acknowledge God. We're subject to the same experiences of every human being on the planet, but that as Christians we bring a different perspective to bear on it. And that's why I always end up going to these poets, because in the midst of all the Christmas stuff that's going on, much of which is very good and fun, it helps me to remember what anchors me. And that anchor is this, that in all their speaking of the first coming of Jesus at Christmas, they all flow from the conviction that in this baby we see God's chosen way of doing things. And it's a choice that leads to crucifixion. Now, there are some things, aren't there, that are not logically possible. Um, I remember I used to watch the two Ronnies quite a lot when I was a teenager. Um, And if any of you were familiar with that, you might remember a, a joke um, which Ronnie Barker told in one of his news items, I think. Uh, it was so, it, he began talking about somebody who'd done something, I can't remember what that was, but um, he then says, and he went on to prove that black equals white and was then run over on a zebra crossing. <laughs> well, that was an unfortunate accident, but it's simply not possible to do that, is it? Black can never equal white. And the more time I've spent thinking about Advent, the more I've found myself constantly confronted by the conviction that you simply can't have nativity without crucifixion. To try and separate those two things off gives us something which is actually not not possible. And that might seem obvious, um, but isn't that how Christmas in the West is so often presented? I don't know whether it's by deliberate omission or just careless neglect or concern for sales figures, but what happens to Jesus after he's about three years old um, is simply not evident in any of um, the sort of trappings of Christmas that that we see around us. Babies are cute, we can do babies and we can have that bit, um, but let's stop there. However, just as we can't have nativity without crucifixion, so you can't have crucifixion without resurrection. Because if the resurrection had not happened, then we wouldn't be here, and this building wouldn't be here. Um, I I think that it simply wouldn't have survived for for 2,000 years on the basis of nothing having really happened. Um, I I was struck by um, something reported in in the Church Times recently. There was a reference to the um, Premier Radio's atheist prayer experiment, where um, about 40 people who considered themselves to be atheists were invited to... Well, no, not, sorry, not 40 people, more than that, but um, people were invited to participate um, and pray, commit themselves to pray for 40 days just to see if, if it changed their minds about, about their position as atheists. Uh, and I think um, they hadn't had reports in from everybody. I think two people had become Christians, but uh, it had been a rather varied um, experience for some of the other participants. However, one of them was reported to have said that if God could do something that is completely impossible by our laws, that would be a lot more convincing. And I instantly thought, well, he's done it. 
Um, it may seem rather remote from us in time. It may be that we need to work a bit harder to examine the resurrection and think about it. But I believe that it certainly happened. And I think that um, the fact that it happened is part of the ongoing experience in the life of the church. Um, from time to time, we may even experience it in our own lives. So we can't have nativity without crucifixion. We can't have crucifixion without resurrection. And actually, we can't have resurrection without a sound understanding of creation. This is a big subject too, but it's also crucial, I think, to the idea of the second coming. If you think about the words in Isaiah 35, and I'm paraphrasing, um, the prophet says, the wilderness and the dry land will be glad, the desert will blossom and burst into song. It's an extraordinary image of what's happening to the created world. And it comes from the conviction of a creator God being someone who didn't just set the thing going, but that he goes on sustaining and being involved in what is made. It's the God who made a way in the wilderness, the God who was so involved in rescuing the Israelites from Egypt, in parting the Red Sea, but also in keeping them in the barren surroundings of the wilderness in order to form them into his people. And the degree of God's involvement and commitment and love for what he's created is highlighted by um, Robert Southwell in New Prince, New Pomp. And the conflict that's involved is evident in New Heaven, New War. And the cost of transforming the world through the presence of Jesus is something he explores in The Burning Babe. The resurrection is the demonstration of God's commitment to the created world. And it's not just about what happened to Jesus, it's a demonstration of what's to come to all of us at some point in the future. It's about a life which is not bound by death, but which is lived in the fullness of God's presence. So, each of the five main poems or hymns that I refer to in the book are addressed very directly to us. Um, you may be familiar with the hymn, Hills of the North Rejoice. It's something that I can remember from childhood, but I discovered recently the, um, the adapted words uh, in, in the hymn book we know, use now, which are a fantastic expression of what the, um, the uh, second coming is about. It's absolutely rooted in the idea of, of God as creator. Um, it's rooted in the experience of Jesus. And in the, in the final verse, it invites us to shout as we journey on, to be part of, of the journey, to join in. And we find the same thing in, in Robert Southwell's poems. Um, at the end of New Prince, New Pomp, he wants us to look again at the, the scene, the nativity scene in the stable, and join in, to enter into it. And at the end of um, New Heaven, New War, he, uh, there's the wonderful phrase, my soul with Christ, join thou in fight. Um, if you're familiar with Britain's Ceremony of Carols, you'll know some of these words because he set them to music in, in, uh, in that piece. Um, but what I didn't realise was that only half the poem is, is set to music and there's a wonderful first half as well, which I, I recently discovered. But we're always addressed. We're invited to join in. This is something not that we sit back as outsiders and look in on, but that we are part of. God invites us to be actively involved in what he's doing in his life and in this world. It's about living with that dimension of reality, about the presence of God who's dynamic and active and has more to do in the future.
So how do we do this? It's challenging. I think this is about letting God grow in us. And how do we go about that? I think that letting God work in us means being willing to be challenged. But I also think that it's not always up to us. Sometimes we can, um, we can try very hard to make things right. Um, uh, sometimes um, I've referred to it as I can cope syndrome. And actually we need to, to stop trying and allow a bit of space for, for God to um, help direct us in whatever situation it is. Um, and again, to think about uh, John of the Cross, there's a lovely phrase, I think, from one of his poems, but he says, if the soul is seeking God, know that the beloved is seeking the soul much more. The sense that actually wherever we are, God's love is bigger, and it's love for us as unique individuals, and that he's there, if you like, one step ahead. Sometimes we want God on our own terms, and I think the kind of uh, rather secular celebration of Christmas illustrates that. It's a Christmas built on our terms, not always wanting to listen to God, perhaps finding that uh, God's not always easy to hear, even if we try. But I think Advent's a time for letting go of our terms and taking the risk of stepping through the Advent window, wandering around in the landscape, being prepared to be challenged and seeing what we discover. So thank you for listening. Thank you very much indeed, Jane. That was excellent. And thank you so much for sharpening our focus, I think, on the season of Advent. And, and I think we'll go from this uh, thinking in a more considered way, I'm sure, about some of the things that we're hearing and saying and singing uh, over the next few weeks. Um, and in, in, in relation to singing, and I, I speak as, as the presenter of St. Paul's, where I'm very concerned with the, the worship and the music, um, and, and I've always thought um, that the quality of the sorts of texts and music that are produced and have been produced over the centuries for the season of Advent are superior to the quality of the texts and, and uh, music that have been produced for Christmas. Not, not totally, obviously, but I've always thought, for example, that Advent hymns are better, in inverted commas, than, than Christmas hymns. I wondered if you've got any thoughts on why. Hmm, challenging. Um, I think probably because there's a little bit more of the bigger picture in Advent. I think it's very easy to make Christmas a rather narrow focus. Um, it, it's very much about the birth of Jesus and we look at the particular events around that birth and, and they're only in you know, the beginning of Matthew's Gospel and the beginning of Luke's Gospel. Um, now you can sort of extend that outwards a bit. There's obviously a lot in the Old Testament about um, which refers to the, to the birth of Jesus. Um, but I think that there's something about Advent. I mean, these traditional themes, heaven and hell and death and judgment, it's about being pushed to our limits, really, and being forced to think about things which are rather uncomfortable, um, to think about, you know, death and what's going to happen when we die and all that kind of thing. Um, and I think that um, when we're actually pushed, the, I think there's a relationship between, between that kind of experience and the quality of, of writing that comes out when we reflect on that. Um, 
Yes, and in fact, you, you've made me think about how uh, a creative artist goes through agony to produce something beautiful, and therefore, if the themes that he or she is working with are agonising, yes. so so much more can can the creative impulse be tapped. Mm. So, would people like to ask uh, Jane a question, or indeed comment uh, on what she said, or perhaps supply their own thoughts about this Advent season? Yes, just there. Yes, I think that's true. Um, and I think, I mean, sometimes there can be things like, like you've experienced, which are very major incidents, and you can find that, that something like that provides that kind of glimpse, because God is there and we are pushed to, to the extremes. I think sometimes in the more mundane goings-on of life, it's actually quite hard to allow ourselves to glimpse that. Um, I was very challenged recently by um, hearing uh, somebody talk, at, it was a clergy day in, in the Carlisle Diocese, um, and he, I mean, I, I, it's all sort of rather third-hand this, but he was talking about when he'd worked in a parish um, where the, um, there was, a, a, I think, a black Pentecostal congregation who worshipped in the Anglican church building. So he would be coming out from a service just as the Pentecostal pastors were going in and uh, had a very good relationship with them. And very often he, he would um, walk past and the, the lady would, would say, um, you know, I've seen the glory. And that was the kind of standard phrase. And he, I think, so he'd been into worship one day, they'd had the service and he saw her coming. He said, I thought I'd, I'd get one up. So I said it first. I said, you know, we've had our service. I've seen the glory. And um, she said, oh yes, and so have we. And he said, well, you haven't had your service yet. And, um, and she said, no, but every day she and her husband would, um, begin, you know, sitting in bed, and she said something um, to the effect that they would pray, that they would um, be able, and they would thank God for the glory that they were going to see during the day. And I, I found that very challenging, because I don't do that very often. <laughs> but it actually makes you think, there is, this, there is this reality, and we live it, and we're part of it. Um, and it's, it's there for us to, to experience. And I, we don't live in the full glare of that all the time, but I'm sure that there are moments when sometimes we might see it because we've been looking and sometimes it just strikes us and, and we have that opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, I think that's an interesting comment. Um, there's, a, there's a balance, isn't there, by... That it's very positive to if you're in an environment where there are people who, who believe um, different things, people who have other faiths perhaps, it's great to be in a situation where there is the kind of openness that, that you can um, respect one another and, and um, you know, tolerance is a great um, virtue, isn't it? Um, but it can be elevated um, too high perhaps, um, is what you're saying, so that actually Perhaps this illustrates it. Um, when I worked as a curate in, um, in Harrow, there was a primary school um, when quite a lot of the children from church families went to this school. And I can remember one of the mums saying um, that as far as 
um, faith was concerned or religious education, it was pretty poor because there was a sense that everything was boiled down to the lowest common denominator. Um, and actually instead, I, it would have been great if within that environment children had been able to um, be, um, be strong within the tradition that they came from. It's also very mixed um, faiths in, in that environment. Um, and it would be good to be able to cultivate the kind of situation where you can talk about what you believe in and other people can talk about what they believe in and it's out in the open rather than it being something that's, that perhaps we feel we can't talk about and is a bit hidden and, and has to stay um, secret. So I think that we do live with something of a, of a dilemma really. Um, I don't know if that really answers the question. but. Um, Yes, yeah. I think that's important. Yes. I know sometimes I had conversations with people and then I've come away and thought, well, you know, actually I could have said something about my faith. I could have said more and why didn't I? And uh, yeah, and it's actually learning to do that. Yes, I mean, I don't... I don't, you may correct me, but I, I can't think of anywhere in scripture, for example, which says that this is a condition of, of the second coming happening. And I think that, I mean, one of the things is that all the, the biblical writers were from a very specific place, weren't they? They were from the Middle East, um, different, uh, different experiences and different times of, of writing, but they were all from, from that, that area and the cultures uh, over uh, you know, of, of that place over a period of time are represented. Um, obviously, the kind of culture that we live in now is um, gives us a much much bigger picture, if you like. I mean, you know, Islam didn't exist then, for example. Um, I, I may not be answering this very well, but I I think that um, you know, if all Jews became Christians, I'm still not convinced that that would necessarily be the point when when Jesus would return. I have no reason for believing that. Uh, I don't know what the reasoning behind it is. It's kind of poetically neat, I think, but um, as I say, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any reason for thinking that, that that is true. I mean, I just think that we can never know. And I think that a lot of what Jesus says um, when he's talking to his disciples about it is very much about not knowing the day or the hour, but being ready. Um, and I'm sure that praying for not just Jews, but for the whole, whole of the rest of the world is part of that sense of being readiness. Um. For what it's worth, just, just, just one of my thoughts about this is, is that I believe very strongly that um, the second coming is, is actually about our death and that therefore one of the extremely exacting things about Advent is that there's a, there's a dual preparation going on. There's the preparation to welcome Christ into our lives at Christmas, but there's also the preparation for our death when we'll stand in the presence of Christ and therefore what we should be doing in this life is, is indeed preparing ourselves for the time when we'll stand in his presence. Uh, and, and that seems to me to be the most important focus um, uh, of our worshipping lives.
Yes, I think it is. Um, I know that sometimes um, I, I can, I've heard people talk about, um, you know, God, God is within us, and um, somehow I felt rather, rather cautious about it, not because I don't believe that God works in us, but because sometimes um, perhaps I've heard people talk as if that's the... There's no external reality to God, if I can put it like that. Um, and, and I don't believe that, that to be true. But I do think that the capacity to be self-aware, um, to be willing to look inside ourselves and to be honest about ourselves is directly linked to the extent to which God can, can work in us as well. I mean, I think those two things are are absolutely two things that go together. Um, and I do think, um, I think it's re rectified a little bit now, but I certainly can remember thinking um, when I was first ordained um, that there seemed to be a lot about the, the value of Eastern traditions and the value of meditation. And, and sometimes you would find people that have rejected um, Christian faith and um, turned to Buddhism, for example, because they really valued that kind of emphasis. Um, and yet I used to get frustrated because I think there's such a strong tradition of contemplative prayer within Christianity um, which also needs to be brought to the fore um, and so you know and I think you know it's, it's a bit uncomfortable that the Meister Eckhart and John of the Cross and the idea of the dark night of the soul and all that kind of thing because I think at one level we want to say um, <laughs> it reminds me of actually my, my oldest son when he was about three or four, um, he was talking about Easter. Now, he must have been quite young, younger than, younger than three, I think. He was talking about Easter, and he said, oh, well, it was Good Friday. Well, Jesus died, and that's very sad, but God gave him a life again, and so that's all right. And I thought, yes, well, that makes it sound so easy, doesn't it? It makes it sound as though when we experience, you know, really bad things and pain and, and the death of people we love and all that kind of thing, um, that we'll be able to say at the same time, but actually, it's really okay. But I think the reality is that we need to be able to be in a place where we don't feel that it's okay. We need to be able to be in the darkness, and sometimes that means being uh, acquainting ourselves with the things within us that are not not very comfortable to look at, perhaps. Um, but I agree that 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 whole tradition is is vital, really important. I think I do. Um, I, I've been struck quite recently. I've seen two different images of the um, the journey of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, um, and fairly traditional images of you know Mary on a donkey and Joseph leading the donkey. But but they've be both been images of um, of them travelling and and coming up against the security wall. Um, and which divides Bethlehem from, from Jerusalem. And that seems to me to encapsulate exactly that kind of thing because there is so much in the nativity story which is about power and about oppression and about fear as well because I think you know, Herod was desperate to try and destroy anything that was going to um, be a threat, of, uh, a threat to his own position and his own power. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why I feel uncomfortable very often with all these very cosy images of Christmas that, that we find 
um, in shops and advertising, all sorts of things. And um, I don't know what we we could do. Um, this isn't a, a kind of oh, we can't do anything. I just mean it's actually a good thing to think about. How do we bring that kind of um, element into our into our Sunday worship, for example? Um, so that we don't get to nativity too quickly and that we actually live with this sense that the, the context um, into which God chose to, to come in Jesus is this very, very broken kind of world. Um, and it's as bad now as it was for them then. Um, I shall go on thinking about that. <laughs> it's an important point about understanding reality as it is now and Christ in the midst of that reality and some of the recent representations of um, the miracle plays out in the streets in contemporary dress have been very good uh, at indicating that these stories are alive now and relate to the things that we see on our television news screens. Thanks for that. Uh, Any other comments from the floor? Right. Um, yes, I'm sure that it can happen through those, those things. Um, and I think sometimes um, if you have a season like, like Advent, for example, it can be a good time when you set yourself a time to do something which is perhaps a little bit more than you, you might normally think you can manage. So if, if there is something that you can, you say, I'm, I'm going to do this every day throughout Advent, then, then that's a good starting point. Um, uh, I mean, sometimes, you, you know, you might just be somebody who, who wants to use Bible reading notes and, and maybe you don't always do it, but actually setting aside time to do that and to think about what, what's in those reflections can be a good way in. Um, and I think in terms of perhaps specific things, if you wanted a specific focus, I mean, I think Tom Wright's always worth reading. Um, one of the things of his which I read a year or so ago which I found very stimulating was, um, I should get this right, um, Surprised by Hope is the title. I don't know whether you've come across that, but in that he explores the idea of the second coming and, and the idea of, of death and what happens when we die and all that kind of thing. And there's a lot of biblical reflection in that. So sometimes it can be good to, to pick on something like that, which isn't specifically about Christmas <laughs> and is something just a little bit different but is appropriate to the season. Um, but I do think that it this business of stepping through the window, it, you know, in a sense we work out ourselves how we do it, but it's about making space so that God has got a little bit more room to, to grow in us, I think, and finding the things that are going to help us do that. I think there's something in the Anglican tradition about living liturgically, which is that there's a strong pattern to the church's year, and there are things which mark out uh, um, the church's year in different ways. Yeah. So Advent Advent tends to be a time when um, yes, the people perhaps wouldn't want to sing carols just yet, um, and we wouldn't sing the Gloria, and we'd use the penitential Kyrie's instead, and we wouldn't have flowers in church and, and that kind of thing, um, and until um, at the midnight service, um, at midnight mass, or, or Christmas communion, um, when suddenly that it's sort of almost at the moment when it happened, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and then we have all the joy and the singing and the flowers and, and goodness knows what. And that's partly about trying to, 
bring the um, I suppose the pattern into into our into our worship and in, into our daily lives, so that we mark things out. Now I know that in in other traditions there's more a sense of um, actually, well, you know the birth happened, the resurrection happened, let's celebrate it all, all the time. So then people might choose not to want to mark it out in that particular way. And actually the Christmas, the Christmas season extends for quite a while. Um, and the church I worked at in Kendall, we had a Christingle service, but it was always for the Feast of the Presentation. So it was actually the 2nd of February. And that was the final celebration of this whole season, which... which um, sort of began, well, I suppose we began with Advent and then it changed to Christmas and, and that's when you stop thinking about, about the baby, if you like. You think about Jesus being presented in the temple as a baby. But... <laughs> well, not really. We, we do put the Christmas decorations away, um, but, but we, we have the season of Epiphany, you see, which begins on the 6th of January. And Epiphany is about, um, you know, it means manifestation. It's about God making himself known. So the actual feast of Epiphany is when we think about the wise men, the Magi, bringing their gifts and about what those gifts mean, because they're completely inappropriate for a baby in many ways and that helps us to think about you know gold for kingship about Jesus as king about one who's going to be crucified because myrrh is used for um, one of the spices that was used for anointing for burial um, and, and frankincense uh, is something that was used in worship so it's got all those dimensions of of who Jesus is and then you think about how God reveals that through Jesus as he begins his ministry. So all that's going on at the same sort of time but then we just leap back to him being a baby for the Feast of the Presentation and we do that bit and then, and then uh, that's... <laughs> well on that note I think that having just almost persuaded so let's stop but um, Jane as I said thank you so much for being here thank you for your talk to us thank you for this wonderful book and thank you for sharpening our focus on this season and I think as I said earlier sending us away to think in a much more considered way about what the season means and what, we, what it means to us through our words and our music so huge thanks to Jane <laughs>